Well, good morning, everyone. You might not be aware of it, but today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And uh, pardon me if I have no confidence in Google to put, out, put that on their homepage or for any of the mainstream news media outlets to tell us, but nevertheless, it is um, the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and it's worth us remembering it. It's actually the 40th anniversary of the first Sanctity of Human Life uh, Day, which was observed on January 22nd, 1984, by President Ronald Reagan's proclamation. And that day was selected to coincide with the infamous 1973 Supreme Court decision, Roe versus Wade, that legalized abortion in all 50 states. And that was uh, in 2022, by God's amazing grace, overturned. But um, that doesn't mean that the job is done in terms of remembering the sanctity of, of human life. And so today, as we commemorate Sanctity of Life Sunday, I just want to assure you, uh, this is not for political reasons. You're not going to hear a political speech, but instead the reason we're doing this is to reinforce a biblical worldview. We live um, every other day of the week in the world, and this fallen world is constantly pressing its worldview, its philosophies, its presuppositions, its values on us and in us. And frankly, one of the reasons why it's important for us to remember um, the Lord's Day and to be in the house of the Lord is to have our worldview refreshed, to be recalibrated from God's word about what is true and right and holy and what's false and what's wrong and what's sinful. So that's the direction that I'm coming from this morning. And you're also going to see that we're going to talk about a lot more than just abortion. The sanctity of human life is a fundamental biblical doctrine and affects a lot of areas of life and theology. Um, there's six areas that we're going to be talking about this morning. There's, there's more than that. You'll, you'll see what I mean. So first of all, what do we mean by the sanctity of human life? We mean that human life is holy. It's intrinsically holy. That is, it's fundamentally special and sacred because of what human beings are. And we read about what human beings are in Genesis 1.27. It's a familiar verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this image of God is what sets us apart from animals. It means that there's certain key ways in which 
we resemble God, not physically. God doesn't have a body like we do. He's, he's a perfect spirit. But there are these characteristics that cause us to resemble God. For example, our ability to know right from wrong, to, be, to recognize injustice, for example, to recognize the difference between truth and error, to be able to communicate on the wavelength of words, to have the capacity to create and to be artistic. These and others are um, characteristics that make us uniquely human, but they're part of our being image bearers of God. And so we're not evolved animals, but we are special creations of God whose purpose in life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And as Americans, we declare with our founding fathers, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All of that predicated on the acknowledgement of the existence of God, our creaturehood, and the fact that we're image bearers of God. Therefore, all human life is to be honored, protected, and defended. That's what we mean by the sanctity of, of human life. And as you're going to see, it, it, this truth has its tentacles in a whole bunch of areas, but... We are going to talk about abortion briefly because that's what really drove the, the, the origination of the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. So why is abortion a Sanctity of Human Life issue? Because a developing baby in her mother's womb is a pre-born human being, an image bearer of God, and therefore a sacred being. Pastor Kevin read for us earlier from Psalm 139. Here's verses 13 and 14 again. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And the prophet Isaiah wrote, uh, sorry, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1, verses 4 and 5. Uh, God says to Jeremiah, the prophet, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And we could multiply Bible verses, but let's get real. Even pro-abortion people know that pre-born babies are human beings. It's reflected in the California Penal Code. If you, by malice of foresight or ma malice of forethought, if you take the life 
of a so-called fetus, you're guilty of murder, according to the California Penal Code. The, the exception is if the mother wants the life of that baby taken. But never mind that exception. To me, that's contradictory to the rest of the statute. But even the California Penal Code realizes that if you take the life of an unborn baby, that is murder. What should be our goal as believers regarding abortion? And I think that the overturning of Roe versus Wade in 2022, it was 2022, right? It wasn't last year, it was 2022. Anyway, that was something I never thought I would see in my lifetime. I'm still in shock. But as you can tell by the political repercussions from that, that's not the end of our job in terms of standing up for the sanctity of, of human life. I think that the goal uh, for us as believers regarding abortion was stated really well by Gianne uh, Mancini. She's the president of the March for Life, which was just held on the 19th in Washington, D.C., um, don't know if, if you've been watching the weather, but there's been this cold spell that has enveloped the whole East Coast. So the numbers were down, but there were still thousands of people there who braved the cold and the snow in the March for Life. Anyway, Gian Mancini said this, We have not yet built a culture of life in America with well over 900,000 abortions each year and so much confusion over this issue. We continue to have our work cut out for us. In short, we are not yet done. And here's the key. We will march, she says, until abortion is unthinkable. And that's the goal of a worldview to affect our thinking, to communicate um, what is true and what is right and what is holy and what is righteous. Um, the, the laws of our land should be righteous. The laws of our land should protect innocent human life. But we know that that's not the end all be all because sinful human nature rebels against the law and people go around the law. So the goal is for abortion to be unthinkable. And so until that's achieved, we need to keep on speaking up, keep on speaking the truth in love. So number one, the sanctity of human life uh, is very important when it comes to the issue of abortion. But that's not the only issue. Overpopulation. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, one of the representatives to the House of Representatives from the state of New York, 
during a live stream on Instagram in February 2019, she said, there's scientific consensus. By the way, beware when people say there's scientific consensus. Most likely what they mean is certain scientists who hold to a certain political and or worldview that the speaker agrees with. But nevertheless, she said, there's scientific consensus that the lives of children are going to be very difficult. And it does lead young people to have a legitimate question. Is it okay to still have children? Is it okay to still have children? AOC is not alone, but she's part of a movement on Mashable.com. It says hashtags like hashtag child free talk, hashtag child free by choice. And hashtag not having kids have been around on TikTok for a while, but have gained far more popularity and traction in the past year. All of these subcategories fall under hashtag child free, a snowballing TikTok genre that has over 162 million views. There's a movement that says that because of climate change, because of the harm to the earth, because of all kinds of reasons, we should no longer have children. Having children is a bad thing. What does the Bible say? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, the next verse after Genesis 1, 27 that I quoted from earlier. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God said that to Adam and Eve. God also said that to Moses and his family in Genesis chapter 9. Now, I don't believe that that means that this Dominion mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth falls on us as individuals in the sense that it's up to us individually to fill the earth. But that dominion mandate on humankind is still in effect. Human beings are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then think about the biblical view of children. Psalm 127, verses 3 and 5. Maybe you should turn there with me. Psalm 127, verses 3 and 5. Here the psalmist is Solomon instead of David. And he wrote, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, a blessing from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, not a curse, 
not a burden, but a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed, happy is the man who fills his quiver with them. What a completely different perspective on children than AOC, than this uh, child-free movement on TikTok. And really, it has to do with our relationship to the earth. So here's another passage from the Bible, Isaiah 45 and verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God. This is a frequent theme in the Bible and in particular in Isaiah's prophecy. Creation sets God apart from idols. The one true and living God is the God of creation. He created the heavens. He formed the earth and made it. He established it. And then listen to this. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. And in the context of Isaiah chapter 45, the meaning is God formed the earth to be inhabited by people. Even as we saw in Genesis chapter 1, in the dominion mandate, this is the purpose of the earth. And again, you see the importance of worldviews. Those who believe, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez does, that we should be asking ourselves the question, is it okay to still have children? They believe that the earth is here by accident. Because the whole universe came from nothing, for no reason, for no good purpose. It just happened. And the earth just happens to be where it is and to have all of these incredible conditions that just so happen to uniquely make earth the only place in the universe where life can exist. But it's all by chance. And then we are the product of chance. Somehow there was this first living cell in the primordial soup. And it evolved by itself through no external intelligence or power or purpose. And it became an amoeba. And then it became your aunt. Then it became your ancestors. And you are an accident. And not only are you an accident, but you are an intruder. You are an intruder on the earth. How dare you to quote a famous 16-year-old super smart Norwegian environmentalist. How dare you? But how dare you think that you have the right to farm 
and manufacture and draw out life-saving chemicals that allow human life to thrive in all kinds of environments. How dare you? So that raises the question, doesn't it? Are there too many people in the world? Maybe you've heard of this. So I looked up, the, I looked up these numbers on my own. Maybe you've heard that all of the people in the world can actually fit inside the state of Texas. So I did the math. As of January 1st, this year, the estimated population of the earth is 8,019,876,189 souls, according to census.gov. In the state of Texas, total area is 7,487,600, wait a minute, 7,487,603,500,000 square feet, plus or minus an inch or two. And so you do the math. You take the total area of the state of Texas, divide it by the population of the earth, and you come up with 934 square feet per person, which happens to be the square footage of a normal single wide trailer house. And you, so that means for a family of four, 3,735 square feet. Now, I'm not saying this would be a good idea. Could you imagine the crime rate? <laughs> but it's interesting to think about that. You can put, you can fit the entire population of planet Earth in the state of Texas and the rest of the planet would be empty. It never ceases to amaze me when I go on a plane trip, especially across our country. All of the empty land that I pass over. Look at all the empty land that you pass through just going from Lancaster to Ridgecrest. And, and think about this. If the Lord created the earth to be inhabited, and if the Lord has commanded Adam and Noah and all of their offspring to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and if the earth exists by the express purpose of God as the home of mankind, then can there ever be too many people on planet Earth? Gotquestions.org, which is really an excellent resource. I highly recommend it. I haven't run across any of their answers to the questions they raise that I disagree with. Might be there, but it's a really Nice resource, gotquestions.org. And so they ask this question about overpopulation. And at the end of their biblical analysis, they say, 
the biblical answer to overpopulation is not to demand fewer people. There may be a problem with how the population is distributed and with how resources are managed. But the problem is not too many people on earth. Greed, lust for power, and foolishness lead to the mishandling of resources and millions of people suffer as a result. That's a great analysis. Overpopulation. Here's another philosophical area. Environmentalism. Now it turns out that environmentalism is an umbrella term. Lots of things that fit under that umbrella. By the way, do you remember? I forget. I'm getting older than a lot of you. I'll put it to you this way. I remember being in grade school and the emphasis was on ecology. Does anybody remember ecology? Does anybody ever talk about ecology anymore? Ecology used to mean picking up trash, making sure we're not doing dumb things like pouring uh, deadly chemicals into our water supply. Ecology used to mean things like cleaning up the air. And by the way, let me say, I also remember the days in the late 60s, early 70s, when I would play outside with my friends. That's what, that's what kids used to do back then. In, in Anaheim, and by the time, this is particularly true in the summertime, and I'd go in at night when the streetlights, no, before the streetlights went on, and I'd eat dinner, and I'd go to bed, and I could hardly breathe. Does anybody remember that? So, praise God for the good effects of good environmentalism. The, the air in Southern California is cleaner than, than it used to be. But that's what ecology used to mean. That's what environmentalism used to include. But it's grown so far beyond that into its own worldview. And I say into its own religion. But if we come back again to what the Bible has to say, there is a biblical environmentalism. Back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is before the fall. God had given Adam a job. Not to let nature run amok, but to work it and keep it. And so the dominion mandate that we see in Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27 doesn't mean that we have the right to destroy the earth and its resources, but to work and keep the earth as good stewards. Realizing that God created the earth and its resources 
to serve the needs of humankind. That's why they're there. Look in Genesis chapter 8 for a minute. This is after the flood, the great flood. It wasn't Noah's flood. It's God's flood. He's the one who sent it. But he saved Noah and his family. So Genesis chapter 8, verses, uh, starting in verse 21. So it's the la- last couple of verses there. Actually, look at verse 22. Rome. Genesis 8.22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That is a great promise. This is um, part of the so-called Noahic covenant, a covenant that God has made, an an oath-bound promise that God has made to preserve human life on the earth. And in this promise of preservation, there's this hint of the purpose of the earth itself. Seed time and harvest. God is preserving the earth for seed time and harvest. The earth is to produce food. It is meant to produce food and resources for the benefit of mankind. And then moving on into chapter 9, Genesis 9 and verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There's the dominion mandate again. This is post-fall, post-flood. Still in effect, not changed. And then skip down to verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And so nature is our smorgasbord. Its main purpose is to feed, to provide for God's image bearers. And this care of God for us is reflected in Psalm 104, where we read in verses 14 and 15, the psalmist says to God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. That's the purpose of the earth from its creator. That means that we are not intruders in the earth. We are not parasites on the earth. We are God's appointed stewards of the earth and its resources. We should take care of them. 
We shouldn't abuse them. That's suicide. And that's not good for future generations. But whatever we do, in terms of our relationship with the environment, we need to keep in mind, we're not intruders, we're not parasites. This is our home. And God has provided our home to provide richly all of our needs. What about capital punishment? To some people, including the Pope of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, the sanctity of human life means that no human life should ever be taken by other people. But we're in Genesis chapter 9. Look at verse 6. This is all part of the Noahic covenant. God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In other words, the death penalty is required by God. It's commanded by God in the case of murder because murder is an assault, an attack against the image of God. And because that assault, that attack against the image of God has occurred to the point of the shedding of blood so that somebody is dead, then that perpetrator now needs to be put to death to uphold the image of God. When a society refuses to enforce capital punishment for murder, it dishonors the image of God in people. Now, we should also be just and we should do whatever we can to make sure that the results of our justice system are just. But regardless, we should not throw away the death penalty because we think we're more, more virtuous than God. God is the one who has instituted capital punishment. And it's all part of the sanctity of human life. Immigration. There are people who think and um, lobby for no borders between nations. But if you think about it, national boundaries are the result of God's providential care over the nations, God's providential rule over the nations. In Acts 17 and verse 26, the Apostle Paul said that God made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times 
in the boundaries of their habitation. And it was God who recognized the difference, for example, between Israel and the surrounding nations. It was God who says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. It's God who raises up rulers to rule in nations over people in the nations. And so this idea of a borderless, boundaryless world, at least in this age, is not biblical. It's the figment of fallen people's imaginations. It's utopian. It's Marxist. So if you think about it, just as God has a kingdom with laws and terms of citizenship, so his image bearers have the right to determine immigration policy and enforce national borders. That's true. But on the other hand, as believers, we should think of all immigrants, including illegal immigrants or undocumented immigrants, as image bearers of God. They're not animals. They're not objects. They're image bearers of God. We should desire border policy, immigration policy that is just and that is legal and that is wise. There is the biblical principle that a man who provides not for his own household is worse than an unbeliever. And in a similar way, a a king, a ruler, who's not, first of all, mindful of his subjects and citizens is worse than an unbeliever in that sense. We should desire wise and just uh, immigration policy and border enforcement But we need to remember that those people are people. They're image bearers of God. And we might do the same thing that they're doing if we were in their situation. In fact, we should take advantage of it and think of the influx of immigrants into our country as the Great Commission in reverse. The Great Commission tells us to go, therefore, and Make disciples of all nations. Well, right now, all the nations are coming to us. And we should evangelize them. Take advantage of that. Redeem it. And then finally, the gospel. Think about the gospel in terms of the sanctity of human life. Look in Colossians chapter 1. This is an amazing paragraph. And it, this paragraph, verses 15 through 20, 
This is a description of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Remember we said that the sanctity of human life is predicated on the, our identity as image bearers of God. God created us in the image of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 1 calls him the, um, the, the exact representation of God, the, the imprint of the substance of God. That's who Jesus is. So Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, is also the firstborn over all creation. In other words, he has ownership rights. He has inheritance rights over all of creation because after all, all things were created through him and for him. Which Paul goes on to describe in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is an amazing person. Jesus is beyond our comprehension. But notice what Jesus has done for us. His creatures, his image bearers, starting in verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is not a little God. Jesus is not partially God. No. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. But then God, through Jesus, was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This one who is the very image of God came into this world in order to live and to die and to rise again so that fallen image bearers like us might be saved. And this people this church is described in the Bible like this. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And then as believers, he calls us to put off the old self and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's Ephesians 4.24. That's amazing. The, the sanctity of human life, the, the image of God, is used by the Apostle Paul 
to explain the reason for Jesus saving us. What is Jesus doing in those whom he saves? He is renewing us. He's recreating the likeness of God in us, in true righteousness and holiness. And then looking to the future, this is what Jesus is doing in us now. We have a great future. God created the earth to be our home and to provide for all of our needs. But the scope of Christ's redemption includes the earth itself and the whole created cosmos. The Bible promises new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's our true and better home. And our citizenship is there. Our primary citizenship is not here, but it's there. And here's how the Bible describes our true and better home, the new heavens and the new earth. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. For the former things have passed away. Behold, I make all things new. Do you see this? This is not politics. This is a biblical worldview that encompasses the gospel itself. This speaks to us about why we're here, the purpose of our existence, how to be saved, how to know our creator, how to live forever. It has nothing to do with anything that you or I do. But it's all about what Jesus, who is the image of God, has already done. And the message is, receive it. It's a free gift. Receive it. The promise is, you will be saved. Let's pray. And Lord, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you for your amazing truth. Thank you for telling us the truth. Thank you, Lord, that in the light of the darkness of this fallen, sin-cursed, foolish world, we have your word which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray, Lord, that you will encourage our hearts, that you will help us to stand for your truth and to stand and to speak up for those who can't stand or speak up for themselves. Help us, Lord, to be your representatives 
in this world. Save sinners in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.